All right, so today I'm, go- I'm introducing a brand new sermon series. You can see the graphics from it here, the new series, Draw Near. Um, this series is going to be focusing on the sacrificial system as it's described in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. Now, I know that uh, some of you don't have a lot of positive feelings about Leviticus. Um, it's not very many people's favorite book of the Bible. And, uh, and we get that Leviticus talks a lot about the details of a system of worship that is very different than the way that we worship God today. And we understand that it addresses a lot of issues that were much more obviously important uh, to people living in a culture that was very different from our own culture. But... Growing in our understanding of the system of sacrifices that God prescribes in Leviticus can be very helpful for us today. It can help us to know God better. It can help us to, uh, to understand sin and its consequences better. It can help us to better understand how sinful people like us can relate to a holy God. And it can help us to appreciate the work that Jesus has done to save us from our sins. And those are all big deals. If you engage in this series by listening to these six sermons and doing some of the key readings in key biblical passages from Leviticus and from the book of Hebrews, and you uh, follow through with this, uh, we believe that by the new year, You will know God better, you will understand sin and its consequences better, and you will have a better relationship with God, and you will know more about Jesus' work of salvation on the cross. So we hope that if you weren't excited about it when I said we're going to spend six weeks in Leviticus, you're a little bit more excited now and ready to dive into this this series. So in order to get the most out of this, uh, this next few weeks, Um, I'm going to be laying a foundation today with four key ideas, four foundational ideas uh, that will help you to understand all of the rest of what we're going to be doing in the rest of this study. So the first one is that God is holy. The second big idea is that we are not holy. The third thing is that this is a problem. And then fourth, God has provided a way to overcome this problem. The four again are God is holy, we are not holy, this is a problem, and God has provided a way to overcome this problem. Now, I'm going to take each of those uh, four things and explain some of what the Bible has to say about each of those four things. So the first one is, God is holy. Now, of course, you've all heard that before, but what does it really mean? What does it mean when we say that God is holy? Well, the core idea of holiness is being set apart or separate. You see this when the Bible says that the tools used in the tabernacle, uh, even the shovels used for scooping the ashes from the altar are holy. And what that means is that they are set apart only for the use in the worship 
of God. They are never to be used for anything else. They are separate from common uses. They were, uh, they were beautiful bronze shovels, very uh, fancy and shiny shovels and everything. I'm sure they were, they were very, very nice, uh, much nicer than normal shovels. But none of that is what made them holy. What made them holy was that they were kept separate from ordinary purposes. So separation is one of the primary ideas of holiness. But it isn't just any separation. What makes God holy is that he is totally separate from evil. He only does what is good and wholesome and pure and right. There is no hint of wrong in him. The Apostle John put it like this. He said, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And that really overlaps a lot with the second big idea connected to God's holiness, his absolute moral purity and perfection. His separateness is from anything impure, immoral, wrong, sinful, or tainted. He is completely good. There is no hint of evil at all. He is unsullied by any moral compromise. So think about that for a minute. Wait for that sound to go away. God's holiness means that there is no hint of evil in him at all. He is completely set apart from all evil and all unrighteousness. So that's point one. God is holy. Now, the second part is that we are not holy. I'm not holy. You're not holy. Pastor Mike's not holy. Not even Pastor Mike's mom, Carla, is holy. None of us are holy. All people everywhere are tainted by evil. We are guilty of sin, and that sin corrupts us. Now, I'm not going to say a lot about this one because I think this is the one that is most easy for us to understand and most easy for us to agree with because the Bible is really clear on this and we all really know it anyway. We all know that we are not holy and pure. We know that sometimes we do wrong. Even when we try really hard to do what is right, which, if you're honest, that's not all the time, but even when you do try really hard to do what's right, we sometimes fail. We fail to live up to perfect morality. And so, um, and so sometimes we do things that are really wrong. And sometimes we do things that are just a little wrong. But we are definitely not perfect in all that we think, say, and do. So we are not holy. Now, point three is not quite as obvious to, to everyone. Point two, we're not holy. Point one, God is holy. Point three, this is a problem. This is a problem. You see, for a lot of people, the fact that they have some flaws is just 
not that big of a deal. Nobody's perfect, right? We all just established that nobody is perfect. So if, uh, if, if, if we're all in the same boat, then maybe it's not such a big problem to be in that boat, right? Sometimes we want to think that our sins are not really that big of a deal. We tend to compare ourselves with others. We say, hey, look, I'm not dealing drugs. I'm not robbing banks. I'm not enslaving children. I'm not committing acts of terrorism. You know, people who do things like that, they have a problem. I don't have a problem. I may not be perfect, but compared to Hitler or Charles Manson, I'm doing pretty good. Or we look at the bad things that we could have done and of course, you know, we don't commit every sin that we're tempted to do. Don't we get some credit for resisting doing those things? I mean, sure, we did a few small bad things, but we kind of wanted to do some really bad things, and we didn't do them. Doesn't God give us credit for that? Doesn't that uh, make up for it? Are we really not so bad? And so we're t- tempted to conclude that God is holy. I'm not perfectly holy. But it's really not that big of a problem. And we justify ourselves with arguments that we really aren't that bad, that our sins aren't that big a deal. Surely God will overlook what I have done wrong in light of the complete body of evidence, right? When he weighs the good and the bad and the scales of justice, my good will be enough to outweigh my bad. But here's the thing, though. God is holy. And a big part of what that means is that he is completely separate from all sin and evil. And we have some sin and evil in us. And that means that God must be separated from us. The prophet Habakkuk says to God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. God's holiness means that he cannot simply accept sinful people into his presence. Our connection with God is broken. And while we are able to survive temporarily, a time is coming when our separation from God will be complete. And that is what Jesus refers to as being cast out into darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our lack of holiness has already led to the entry of death into the world, so that we now all die. In the book of Romans, it puts it like this. It says, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. You see, when we were originally created, we were not made to die. Death is an unnatural result of our lack of holiness. When the corruption of evil entered the world, death also entered the world so that now all people die. And that verse that I just read said that through one man, sin entered into the world. And of course, that's a reference to Adam, the first man and the first sinner. 
And his story helps us to understand some things about sin and its consequences. And it comes in Genesis chapter 3. So you might want to turn there in your Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, living in the perfect Garden of Eden, were given just one prohibition. They were free to do anything in their garden paradise except for one thing. They were not to eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. But Adam and Eve did not obey God. They concluded that what God had told them was not actually what was best for them. That the good that they believed would come from disobeying God would be better than the good that would come from obedience. They believed that whatever bad consequences might come from their sin, the pleasure of their sin and what they would get from it, the benefits they would get from eating the fruit, would be worth it. But they were wrong. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see, they immediately started to feel guilt and shame that they had never had before. They no longer wanted to be seen by each other or by God. And so they made some kind of leaf garments that, that may have covered them physically well enough, but they did nothing about their guilt and shame. And in the next verse, God appears. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. You see, the relationship between God and Adam and Eve was broken. They were ashamed to stand before him. And so two big consequences of our lack of holiness are that we will die and that our relationship with God is broken. And these are big problems. And they are caused by just one little sin. They ate fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. What's the big deal? <laughs> Uh, you know, why, why is that such a big thing? Now, to tell you the truth, I'm not really sure what was so special about that particular fruit. Why did God forbid it from them? And, 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 and I don't think that there was anything magical about that fruit that opened their eyes to knowing good and evil. I suspect that what was really significant, what was going on here that was important, was that they, uh, the, about that fruit was that it was forbidden. In eating the fruit, Adam and Eve were deliberately disobeying God. They chose their own will over his will. They rebelled against God's instructions. You see, God is holy... And his commands are holy. Not eating the fruit was, in fact, the very best thing that they could have done. 
but they didn't trust God. They chose to rebel. One little sin. What's the big deal? So they ate a fruit. They die for that. We all die because of an act that appears to be pretty harmless? Yeah. Because it isn't the magnitude of the act itself that makes it sinful. It is the fact that it is a rebellion against God. And that rebellion pollutes us. It taints our being with evil. And it is an evil that once it has a foothold in humanity, it spreads quickly. Adam and Eve ate a fruit. Their son Cain murdered his brother. Two chapters later in the days of Noah, the Bible tells us the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That certainly escalated quickly, didn't it? You see, even a small sin is really a big sin. And the corruption of our hearts spreads quickly, and it pollutes our whole being. We are sinful, even if we're not as sinful as we could be. And even if we're not as sinful as Hitler. So even a minor sin, like eating a piece of fruit we were told not to eat, breaks our relationship with God and makes us liable to death. Both physical death and what the Bible calls the second death, which is eternal separation from God. Because God is holy, and we are not holy. And that is a big problem. But it is important to notice that although God is holy and he is separate from sin and evil, he still comes to Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? He does not abandon them in their unholiness. His holiness does not mean that he can have no dealings at all with sinful people. God is still able to have some kind of a relationship with sinful people, though it isn't the same as it once was before sin. It is a broken relationship. Sin creates a barrier between people and God. But God reaches out to us despite that barrier. See, after God confronted Adam and Eve with their rebellion against him and let them know of the horrible consequences that would be coming, God did something for them that was very significant. It says in uh, Genesis 3, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 3, verse 21, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. I'm not really sure if these uh, were fur or leather, but whatever they were, they were made of animal hides. They were animal skins. But where did God get the skins from? Well, the Bible doesn't really tell us exactly where he got them, but clearly it's implied that God killed animals in order to make the garments to cover Adam and Eve. Now, of course, God could have just made the garments from thin air. Uh, he's God. He can do that. He can just do that kind of thing. But there's an important reason to think that he did not do that in this case, to think that the animals actually died to cover Adam and Eve. 
Um, they already had their leaf garments, right? They probably covered them physically well enough so that they were uh, covered up. But leaves do nothing to really deal with the actual problem. The actual problem was sin. And the wages of sin is death. Therefore, in order to cover their sin, death was necessary. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But wait, who sinned here? Did the animals sin or did Adam and Eve sin? Whose blood should be paying for these sins? Some random goat or the people who rebelled against God? Well, see, God is subtly introducing a very key concept here. The idea of substitutionary sacrifice. While it is the person who sins and that demands death, it is possible that another can die in the place of the one who sinned. In this case, Adam and Eve's shame and sin is covered by the death of animals at God's own hand. And later, the people of God recognized that this was the way that sin should be dealt with. When people sinned, they would sacrifice an animal to God as a substitute to die in their place. We don't know a lot about exactly how sacrifice was practiced in the early days, but we know that it was a normal part of the way that people worshiped God. Noah, Job, Abraham, they all practiced animal sacrifices. They understood that their sin required the shedding of blood and that this was the way that God had ordained for them to cover their sins. And then later when God called his people out of Egypt and created a new nation to be his own people, living according to his ways in a more, uh, at that time, a more formal system for sacrifices was necessary. And at Mount Sinai, uh, during the, the period of the Exodus, God revealed to Moses exactly how they were to practice these sacrifices. God gave them instructions on how to build the tabernacle, which was a kind of a portable temple where um, the sacrifices would be done. And God gave instructions for a system of priests who would uh, serve as the people's mediators between them and God as they brought their sacrifices. And the priests were from the tribe of Levi. Levi was their ancestor. And they were then called Levites. And so that's how we get the book of Leviticus, which is a book which tells about the ministry of these priests. And the sacrifices were a big part of what these priests did. And we're going to be looking at those sacrifices in a lot more detail over the next few weeks. We'll take... Uh, one sacrifice each week and, uh, and be discussing those. But the main idea is that when people sinned, they would bring an animal to the tabernacle. Sometimes it would be a cow or a sheep or a goat or sometimes a bird. And the priests would help them to offer 
the lifeblood of that animal to God as a sacrifice to cover their sins. And this is known as the Levitical law or the law of Moses. And for 1,500 years, this was the way that God's people repaired their relationship with God when they sinned. They followed the instructions that God had given them on Mount Sinai and offered the life of an animal as a substitution for their own life. But then came Jesus. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Because Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these sacrifices that had been done over all of those centuries. He was the real substitutionary sacrifice that, whose blood really covered the sins of the people of God. Because when you think about it, I mean, really, what difference, what effect does the blood of some goat or sheep have on our guilt and shame? How could offering a bird change our status as unholy? Here's how the Bible puts that in, in Hebrews chapter 10, which is where we're going to be for the next few minutes. So you might want to turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. It says, it says, the law is only a shadow, that is the law of the sacrifices and things, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would have stopped being offered. But the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices were an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But if the death of animals was not actually effective, then why did God tell people to do it? Because the law, that is this whole Levitical law, especially the sacrifices, is a shadow of the good things that are coming. That is, the entire sacrificial system is a foreshadowing, a hint, a, a, a prediction, an indication of what was going to come. It was not the realities themselves. It was not the real sacrifice for sins. It was a foreshadow of the real sacrifice. A few verses later, down in the same chapter there in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 11, it says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, and he's talking about Jesus here, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. 
Jesus offered just one sacrifice. Only one was necessary because the sacrifice that Jesus brought was the reality itself. It was the thing that all the other sacrifices were foreshadowing. It was the sacrifice that actually took away our sins. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. God is holy. We are not holy. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, we are being made holy. Jesus did not bring a sheep to be offered on the altar. He offered himself. He was fully human, and so he could rightfully be our substitute. A sheep for a person is not really a legitimate substitute, but Jesus was one of us. But he was also different from us. He was fully human, but he was also fully God. And as God, he was holy. And the death of a holy God was a sacrifice that paid the price for all of our sins for all time. The people who lived in ancient Israel and offered sheep and goats on the altar, they were putting their faith in God following his instructions and trusting that God would make the payment they were giving enough to pay for their sins. They might not have understood exactly how it was going to work out, but they knew that God had given them specific instructions on how to deal with their sins, and they were going to do it his way. They knew that they deserved death because of their sins, physical death and spiritual death. But they knew that God had put in place a system of substitutionary sacrifice so that the blood of these animals would cover their sins. And now we see with greater revelation that came through Jesus exactly how that works. The animals were a powerful symbol of the greater reality that would come through Jesus. God is holy, we are not holy, and this is a big problem because the wages of sin is death. But God has made a way for us to have our sins taken away if we put our faith in his provision of a substitutionary sacrifice. I hope that now you are all looking forward to exploring more all of the things that we can learn about all this as we moved into a more detailed study of the five sacrifices of Leviticus. And at the end of this study, you can know God better, understand sin and its consequences better, have a better relationship with God, and know more about Jesus' saving work on the cross. So let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your holiness. 
your perfection. All your ways are right. All your ways are good. And we confess that we are not holy, that not all of our ways are good and right. And Lord, we are so grateful that you did not abandon us when we sinned, but that you provided a way. that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the price that we owed for our sins so that he can be our substitute. We are grateful people. Amen.